Placemakers is made possible by J.P. Morgan Chase. J.P. Morgan Chase is committed to expanding access to opportunity for all people and advancing economic growth in all places. Learn more about their global commitment by going to jpmorganchase.com. I don't know if you watch a whole lot of C-SPAN, but if you happen to be tuning in on April 19th, 2007, and you caught the network's gavel-to-gavel coverage from the U.S. House of Representatives, you might have witnessed what I would call a truly spectacular moment. I will not yield, sir. The District of Columbia has spent 206 years yielding to people who would deny them the vote. I yield you no ground. Not during my time. You have had your say, and your say has been that you think that the people who live in your capital are not entitled to a vote in their house. Shame on you. This not-yielding woman is Eleanor Holmes Norton. She represents the people of Washington, D.C., myself included, in the House. And yet, as you heard her just say, we don't actually get a vote there. Because, you see, there are serious limits to what Norton can do for her 670,000 constituents. While I can represent them in every fundamental way except that which is emblematic of their citizenship, the final vote on the House floor, I get to vote in committee, I get to speak whenever I want to speak, I can do whatever any member can do. When you pull that lever uh, that says how you vote, I don't get to do that even when the matter affects only the District of Columbia. And for more than two decades, our non-voting delegate, that's what she's technically called, a non-voting delegate, for more than two decades, she's tried time and again to change things. Like in that C-SPAN clip we just heard, where she was introducing a bill to grant D.C. a vote in Congress. And I will not yield, sir. And that's not the only time Norton's gotten downright feisty on D.C.'s behalf. Check out what she said in 2011, when the federal government was threatening to shut down, a situation which would put D.C. in a bind since, as we'll hear about later, Congress basically oversees the city. It's time that the District of Columbia told the Congress to go straight to hell. So it's no wonder people around these parts have taken to calling Eleanor Holmes Norton the warrior on the hill. She was first elected in 1990 and has been in office for 13 terms. In that time, she hasn't just tried to win full representation for the people of Washington, D.C. in Congress. She's tried to win us our own star on the American flag as the 51st state. I'm Rebecca Shear, and from Slate Magazine, this is Placemakers, stories about the spaces we inhabit and the people who shape them. Today, Washington, D.C.'s ongoing battle against taxation without representation. You've seen our license plates, yes? And the woman who's been duking it out on our behalf for more than two decades, our warrior on the hill, Eleanor Holmes Norton. It's not hard to get an opinion from Washingtonians about our situation in Congress. I feel deprived. I feel inadequate. I feel like it's, it's wrong. I recently strolled around a street fair and asked folks how they feel. Like, what gets done in D.C. doesn't matter because we don't have accurate representation. What about the people that live here? I've got two little kids. As they get older, I'm going to have to try to explain to them that they have every responsibility of an American citizen, yet their country does not respect them and give them the same rights. What we really need is to kind of end this embarrassing, like, dirty secret that the center of the free world. We don't, we don't have democracy here. 
That last point about this embarrassing, dirty secret, Eleanor Holmes Norton says the secret part is true, but it has nothing to do with shame. My greatest frustration is what the polls tell me, that most residents of our country, most Americans, think we have the same rights as they do. At the same time, when they learn we do not, they strongly embrace full and equal rights for the American citizens who live here. But for them to do this, they have to know we don't have it at all in the first place. (laughs) A few other things most Americans might not know about D.C., Norton says. Well, how about the fact that our gross domestic product is higher than that of 16 states? Or that our population is larger than two? There are two jurisdictions, Wyoming and Vermont, that have fewer people than we do. And what's more, if you reside in the nation's capital, as I do, you pay the highest federal taxes per capita in the United States of America. That is a little known factoid. So it is a particularly tough burden when Uncle Sam takes from you everything he wants and does not give you the one quid pro quo to which you are entitled. In other words, representation in the national legislature. And get this, of all the capitals of all the democracies in the world, D.C. is the only one without full voting rights. Now, Eleanor Holmes Norton is just the latest to carry the torch in what's been a very contentious fight to gain these rights. Not just contentious. So can you uh, (laughs) fly us through the history of D.C. and take us through the most um, salient and important moments in, in these struggles? but long. It just depends on how far into the weeds you want to get. This is Chris Myers-Ash. I'm the editor of Washington History and the author of the forthcoming book, Chocolate City, Race and Democracy in Our Nation's Capital, with, uh, with my colleague Derek Musgrove. And Chris says to understand D.C.'s situation, we have to go back, way back, to the year 1783 in the city of Philadelphia. A group of Pennsylvania militiamen came to uh, demand a, a, a bonus from the, the Pennsylvania Executive Council, which was meeting in the same building as what passed for the U.S. Congress at the time. As many as 400 soldiers mobbed the place, blocking the door and refusing to let the delegates out. So you can probably understand why the Pennsylvania Mutiny of 1783, as it came to be called, made a whole lot of federal leaders. Men like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. Well, it made them freak out. Because here was this, this group of armed militiamen basically taking a, a government body hostage almost, or so it seemed. Um, and they were worried about the prospect of the federal government being held hostage by, by state forces of some kind. And so they thought it would be important, as they were thinking about devising this new national government, they thought it would be important for the federal government to have its own place, its own home, its own seat where it would not be under the control of any particular state. So they made it official by writing it into the United States Constitution. Article 1 and Section 8. Which said they'd create a purely federal district over which Congress would, and I quote, exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever. Now, as for where this district would be located, they'd put it along the Potomac River. Maryland would donate a few square miles on one side of the river, Virginia on the other, and they'd call the district Columbia, which at the time was a patriotic way of referring to the United States. But as Chris Myers-Ash points out, unlike the people who live in the District of Columbia today... The people who came to, to live in Washington between 1790, when the site was selected, and 1800, when the federal government moved there, those folks who lived in 
what became the District of Columbia, still voted. Yep, they were actually represented in Congress back then. Uh, if they were on the Virginia side of the Potomac, they voted in Virginia. If they were on the Maryland side of the Potomac, they voted in Maryland. But that state of affairs did not last long. See, about what the framers wrote in the Constitution, you know, how Congress would exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over this new federal district. Well, in 1801, Congress made good on that promise. It put the District of Columbia under its control and also took away the residents' right to vote for local or federal representatives. And right away there's protest because they did not assume that when they moved to the district that they would therefore relinquish all rights uh, as American citizens. I mean, that, the thought wouldn't have entered their heads. I mean, these are people who, who lived through the, the revolution, right? They fought over taxation without representation. Uh, they were not interested in losing that right. Now, Congress did throw D.C. something of a bone not long after. By the next year in 1802, it does establish a, a form of self-government where you have an elected city council and then an appointed mayor. Appointed, by the way, by the president of the United States. And both the council and mayor were at the mercy of Congress. Congress has a veto over everything. That system held for a few years until 1820. And then Congress relents again and allows uh, the mayor to be an elected office. But by the 1870s, when America was experiencing its whole go-west young man, westward expansion thing, Congress decided to change things up yet again and give D.C. what we'd call a territorial government. D.C. is treated like a territory. You know, the, the way Western lands before they become states are called territories, like Utah Territory. And this territorial government had, instead of a mayor, a governor. And he was appointed by, you guessed it, the president of the United States. Which is kind of funny because D.C. couldn't even vote for president until 1974. But I get ahead of myself. Going back to the 1870s, we had this territorial government, right? And our governor, a guy by the name of Alexander Shepard, well, let's just say he messed up. Big time. He takes charge and goes on a spending spree. He, he's very much into development and infrastructure. And so Congress gives him $6 million and he spends $20 million. Now, to be fair, Shepard was spending this money on some pretty important things. Paving roads and sidewalks, setting up sewers, gas mains and water mains, creating the city's first public transit with horse-drawn streetcars. Nevertheless, says Chris Myers-Ash. Congress is appalled by this, uh, this extravagant spending. And in 1874, it, largely because of the fiscal irresponsibility of, the, of, of Shepard uh, and the Board of Public Works, they dismantle the territorial government and dismantle all self-government, actually, in, this, in the district. In its place, they installed this three-man commission who was appointed by, any guesses, anyone? Yep, the president. And that is how things stayed for nearly 100 years. That is called disfranchisement in D.C. history, right? It's, it's where they couldn't vote for anything. They couldn't vote for aldermen. They couldn't vote for Board of Education, uh, anybody. And part of the reason why? Well, it's something we haven't really talked about yet. Race. Remember the name of the book Chris Myers-Ash is working on? Chocolate City, Race and Democracy in Our Nation's Capital. See, at the time of disfranchisement in the 1870s, black people made up roughly a third of D.C.'s population. Thanks to something called the Negro Suffrage Act, which passed in 1867, if you were a male over 21 years of age and you'd lived in the city for at least a year, you could vote, regardless of your race. And that made certain powers that be nervous. 
And this fear, the specter of Negro domination, uh, is part of what's driving the disfranchisement efforts. And it's part of what, what undermines any efforts in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries to bring back the right to vote. I mean, you hear this all the way up into the 1940s and 50s. So even before black people become a majority of the population, which doesn't happen until 1957, uh, long before that, race is the, the primary factor in driving opposition to suffrage in D.C. And this brings us all the way up to the civil rights movement. The movement's leaders tied D.C.'s inability to govern itself to the civil rights agenda. And they, they find a, a very sympathetic audience, a very sympathetic president in, in Lyndon B. Johnson. You know, before Johnson, uh, presidents had, had called rhetorically for, for D.C. suffrage, but they hadn't done anything about it. Johnson actually did something about it. Indeed, he did. He started pushing for self-government in the district. But Congress pushed back. So Johnson took what steps he could and replaced the three-man commission running the city with a presidentially appointed city council and mayor. That was in 1967. More progress came in 1970 when D.C. residents got the right to elect a delegate to the House of Representatives. A non-voting delegate, as we now know, but hey, things were moving along. All this momentum culminated in 1973, when Congress finally, finally passed something called the Home Rule Act. So you have elections in 1974 for a city council and a mayor. Real elections, none of this appointed by the president business. Though, as Chris Myers-Ash explains, there was a reason some skeptics referred to home rule as home fool. Because Congress still essentially has veto power. And many members of Congress who voted for the bill saw it as an experiment. They said, OK, we'll test this out. But if it doesn't work, you know, we're going to take back control. You know, we can we can strip it away if it doesn't work out. Not long after we got home rule, we tried going even further and amending the Constitution to get voting rights in Congress. That effort failed. Only 16 states signed on. We needed 38. But this push for voting rights in the 1970s and 80s, it wasn't the only kind of suffrage movement going on. You also had people fighting for D.C. to become the 51st state. People like... How are you doing? I'm really well. How are you doing, Sam? Sam Smith. I called him up in rural Maine, where he lives now. Back in 1970, he helped found the D.C. statehood party. It should have been obviously clear that the United States didn't need a colony. And that's essentially what Washington was. It was a colony. Smith's party rallied the troops and got D.C. to write up a state constitution and petition Congress to let them join the U.S. as a state. They were following a model set by other territories like Tennessee, Hawaii, and Alaska. Back then, as I recall, they were D.C. was the size of, uh, I think there were three states that were smaller than D.C. in the country. So there was no logical reason why it shouldn't uh, have equal standing Yet nothing came of that petition, nor of the statehood bills later introduced in Congress. So by the time 1990 rolled around and we elected our second non-voting delegate, a third-generation Washingtonian by the name of Eleanor Holmes Norton, well, she had quite the uphill battle ahead of her. We'll hear how she armored up and took on the fight after the break. Hey, I'm Brian Babylon. Placemakers is made possible by J.P. Morgan Chase. Economic recovery is no easy task. In many cities, incomes are shrinking and families and communities are struggling. 
J.P. Morgan Chase is committed to helping solve the problem. J.P. Morgan Chase is deploying $1 billion towards programs focused on expanding access to opportunity and advancing economic growth around the world. In New Orleans, this means injecting capital into neighborhoods that have been on the decline for decades. Lifelong New Orleans resident Greg Rattler is a relationship executive and J.P. Morgan Chase's commercial bank unit. I recently chatted with Greg about J.P. Morgan Chase's impact on the once stagnant neighborhood of Central City. With the strategic investments and partnerships uh, that uh, J.P. Morgan Chase has been a part of, we've been able to identify organizations and collaborators who have helped to restore the vibrant nature of what we lost long ago in Central City. Now we're seeing private business owners, private business interests without government, without prodding, beginning to invest their own private capital in the resurgence of Central City. So we, we like to think that we were somewhat of a, of a catalyst, uh, a magnet that helped to, to foster an era where private capital was uh, encouraged and certainly welcome to be invested there. J.P. Morgan Chase is focused on helping all communities. Learn more by going to jpmorganchase.com. From Slate Magazine, it's Placemakers. I'm Rebecca Shear. This week, we're in Washington, D.C., talking about the capital city's fight for voting rights. Because even though the District of Columbia is the political center of the free world, its 670,000 people don't have a say in our own national legislature myself included. What we do have is a single non-voting delegate in the House of Representatives, Eleanor Holmes Norton. She can introduce legislation, she can vote in committee, but she can't actually vote on the House floor. And that handicap has brought Norton her share of respect, of sympathy, even a bit of ridicule. I'm going to nail you here. I checked your voting record. You have not voted once while you've been in office. You want to defend that? Comedian Stephen Colbert took to calling Norton the fake congresswoman when he was still doing his conservative pundit shtick on The Colbert Report. Norton first appeared on his show back in 2006. Our government is imposing taxes on the residents of the District of Columbia without giving us a vote in the House and the Senate. Isn't that for states? You're not a state. We're not a state. It's in the Constitution. But all joking aside, when I visited Norton's office on Capitol Hill, The non-voting part of her title was made abundantly and audibly clear. As she and I were chatting, that would be up to the council, the mayor, and the CFO to decide. Every now and again, I would hear this sound. Uh, Fiscal year. Does that happen a lot? A fair amount. They're they're just at the end, almost at the end of today's session. So they're taking a lot of votes that I can't vote on. These bells, buzzers, I don't know what you'd call them, but they alert House members about quorum calls and, yes, pending votes, of which Norton gets, you know, zero. And it's been that way since she took office 13 terms ago. But interesting fact, before then, Eleanor Holmes Norton had no intention of holding an elected office. She says the idea came from a good friend of hers, Donna Brazil, who you may now know as a political pundit and interim chair of the Democratic Party. I was more like her mentor. Uh, I was trying to persuade her to go to law school, or maybe not even law school, but to do something else with her brilliant mind. And this seat became vacant. I then was a tenured professor of law, having just gotten tenure. She said, Eleanor, you ought to run for Congress. You're a native Washingtonian. I said, you got to be joking. Norton is the granddaughter of one of the district's first African-American firefighters and the great-granddaughter of a runaway slave. 
And it occurred to her that representing the disenfranchised people of Washington, D.C., it made sense. Well, it helps to grow up in the District of Columbia, which was a segregated city and went to segregated schools. Uh, it, it helps to grow up in the city which had no local government, no mayor, no city council. Uh, it helps to be a child of the civil rights movement and to have had the opportunity to go south to Mississippi, to have been a part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. It also helped that Norton had argued and won groundbreaking cases for the American Civil Liberties Union, including a sexual discrimination suit dozens of female staffers at Newsweek filed against their employer in 1970. Maybe you've heard of or seen Good Girls Revolt, the new Amazon TV series about that case. What do you want? Use that voice of yours. What do you want? Who is that? Eleanor Holmes Norton from the ACLU. After the ACLU, Norton became head of New York's Human Rights Commission. Then, President Jimmy Carter named her the first female chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, where she drafted the country's first set of regulations defining sexual harassment in the workplace. All that helps to transfer that experience to my role as a member of Congress representing the only Americans who pay full federal income taxes, have no representation in the Senate, uh, have poor dears, only me in the House. And Norton hit the ground running to change that. In 1991, she reintroduced the D.C. statehood bill, but it died in committee. In 1992, the country elected a Democratic president. The Democrats held a majority in the House. So Norton thought, hey, why not introduce the bill yet again? But I believe that the good people of the United States do not support the present condition of the residents of the District of Columbia. I believe they would want you to vote, as I am asking you to vote this evening, to make uh, the District of Columbia the 51st state of the United States of America. During the floor debate, you heard a lot of passionate support from the left side of the aisle. Here's one of my favorite moments, care of the late Lucian Blackwell of Pennsylvania. I'm reminded of something that W.E.B. Du Bois once said when he cried out in anguish, why did God make me a stranger and an outcast in my own land? Here we have people who come into the city of Washington, enjoy everything that they have here, create all the problems, and then go home and then tell these people how to run Washington. There's something wrong with that. Something bigoted about that. You would not tolerate that in your state, you know it. The bill was voted down, 277 to 153. But Eleanor Holmes Norton, she considered it an achievement just to get a vote in the first place. At the press conference, she was quoted as saying, I'm ready to declare victory. That didn't sit well with some people. If you were at that press conference, we had lost. We had lost badly. Mark Plotkin is a longtime political analyst and columnist in Washington. We met in the courtyard of one of D.C.'s power breakfast spots, the Four Seasons. And she was taking credit for getting 60 percent of the Democrats to vote for this bill. That's meaningless. We got 152 Democrats. We needed 218. And we had overwhelming majorities. And that's what's wrong. We settled for crumbs, that we just got a vote was in itself considered a victory. No, you play for keeps. That's why Plotkin says he believes that Norton's nickname, the warrior on the hill, it's a misnomer. She gets points for trying, and I'm not interested in trying, nor should the citizenry. 
But that's not what's going on with Eleanor Holmes Norton, says history professor George Derek Musgrove. He is Chris Ash's co-author on Chocolate City. If you look closely at what Eleanor Holmes Norton has done, she's a gradualist. An incrementalist, working her way toward one particular goal. Statehood. And she has a strategy for gaining statehood, is to get tiny little bits of self-determination and to hope that they'll add up over time. She's kind of like operating as a lawyer in a court. She wants to set really small precedents until she builds towards a large case that gets her what she wants. Well, I certainly can't be all or nothing. I'm trying to get whatever I can get every moment I have. I'm trying to get budget autonomy. That's probably the central ingredient of statehood, which is at least for your own money, nobody ought to be able to tell you how to spend it. And when they say you can't spend money on abortions for uh, poor women, that's what I mean by having control over your own money. What Norton's talking about with the budget is something that's happened many times in D.C.'s history. Even with home rule, Congress has final say over D.C.'s budget. So federal legislators have tried several times to stop the district from using its own money to subsidize abortions for low-income women. Not only that, but Congress has tried to prevent D.C. from using its own money to fund a needle exchange. This was in the late 1990s, when our city's rates of HIV and AIDS were through the roof. In the end, President Bill Clinton vetoed the ban, calling it, quote, an unwarranted intrusion into local citizens' decisions about local matters. But that's the thing about home rule, or again, home fool, as some people would call it. We elect our own mayor and city council, but, as Eleanor Holmes Norton is quick to point out... Well, the mayor and city council get to do virtually everything. Uh, if members of Congress decide they want to intervene, they can do so, and they try very hard to do so. But of all the times members of Congress have butted into our business, if you ask Eleanor Holmes Norton which one pained her the most? And you want to know why Eleanor sheds tears from time to time? She'll tell you it happened in 2007, when she introduced the District of Columbia House Voting Rights Act, the one we mentioned at the start of the show, the one that would give the D.C. representative an actual vote. And gave us home rule. I will not yield, sir! The thing about the bill was it wouldn't just grant a voting House seat, a most likely Democratic seat, to Washington, D.C. The bill also added a seat for another jurisdiction several time zones away. Utah, perhaps the most Republican state in the Union. The way Norton saw it, the Democratic seat for D.C. and the Republican seat for Utah, they would, you know, cancel each other out. One for you and one for me. Not unlike when Alaska and Hawaii entered the union in the 1950s. One was Republican and one was Democrat. And initially, things were going really well for Norton's bill in 2007. It cleared the House. Eventually, it cleared the Senate. But as she painfully recalls in the end, we did not get our first full seat in Congress. The only reason we don't have it now is because the National Rifle Association was able to persuade its allies in the Congress to attach a bill that would have allowed us to have that vote in return for wiping out every single gun law in the District of Columbia. Every single law, like our ban on semi-automatic weapons, our penalties for unregistered firearms, and what's more, it would eviscerate our ability to pass future gun laws. And for what? <laughs> it's for a trophy to take back home to people who have nothing to do with us. In other words... We are a, a political football when they wanted. We are a puppet when they wanted. Only this time, she says, it was worse than ever. This was perhaps the saddest moment of my career in the House. It was impossible to look my residents in the, 
in the face and say, I've given up your safety for your vote. What an awful decision to have to make. I think there's no hardest decision. It's like having two children and saying, which one? Well, you couldn't give up either of them. Uh, but I had this in hand and had to give it up or open the nation's capital to the intolerable. So she gave it up. The legislation never made it out of Congress. And again, that failure really ticked off some of her critics. Eleanor Holmes Norton tactically went for the wrong thing. Like our spirited political analyst, Mark Plotkin. Norton should have taken the even the odious, horrible uh, anti-gun control amendments because at least it was an incremental stage that we could have accepted. But she didn't. Eleanor Holmes Norton is a major, major, I said that, I'll say it again, major obstacle because she lulls a sense that something is being done when it's not being done. And Plotkin's not the only one who feels this way. She gives a good floor speech, and, you know, she's our, our happy warrior on the hill, and she'll go up there and she'll fight for us. Um, and that's what we expect from our delegates, to fight for us. We don't actually expect a win. Tim Krepp is a tour guide and author here in D.C. Full disclosure, he ran against Eleanor Holmes Norton as an independent in 2014. He got about 5% of the vote to Norton's nearly 84. She's had the seat for life, I mean, be utterly frank, she'll probably have it for life. Um, but we as a city need to need to start thinking and demanding what we want to have and planning for a post-Norton era. I mean, at some point, we will have a new delegate. And my big fear is that whoever comes next regards this as a um, D.C. politics emeritus position, that you just go to the Hill and you get to stick there and you're not, nothing's expected from you. But Eleanor Holmes Norton, she begs to differ. One of the reasons I had to consider whether I wanted to become a member of Congress was that I come out of the Civil Rights Movement. I come out of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. <laughs> Freedom now. But you know, now is pretty hard to come by when you're jammed up in the political gridlock of Congress. Especially when A, you've served in the minority for most of your career, and B, you can't even vote on the House floor. Eleanor Holmes Norton still insists that real rights for D.C., be it voting representation in Congress or all-out statehood, they are within reach. It's not some fool's errand. She points to other movements that took a lot of time and patience. You would have to have talked to the suffragettes who were the first abolitionists. They saw black men get to vote, such as it was, and it took them, what, 150 years to get their own rights. Well, if somebody had said this was a fool, Aaron, uh, especially to the 20th century suffragettes, I'm, I'm afraid that those women, those polite women, might have found a dirty name to call them. Norton says when it comes to D.C.'s rights, she sees signs of real progress right now. Statehood for D.C. is now part of the 2016 Democratic Party platform. Presidential hopeful Hillary Clinton wrote an op-ed in the Washington Informer saying if she's elected, she'll fight to make the District of Columbia the 51st state. And this year, the city of Washington drafted a new state constitution. On Election Day, we'll vote on whether we should ratify that constitution and petition Congress to enact a statehood admission bill. You know, just like the states I mentioned before, Tennessee, Hawaii, Alaska. This summer, D.C.'s mayor called a constitutional convention... I'm Muriel Bowser. I'm the mayor of Washington, D.C., and I'm calling to order the Constitutional Convention for the 51st state. Yeah. 
And among the first speakers Mayor Bowser introduced? Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton! During Norton's speech, she talked about her quarter-century battling for D.C.'s rights and how this new effort could and should be different. There can be no more pauses, no more ups followed by downs, no more episodic fights, no more delegated home rule that Congress takes back at will, piece by piece, law by law. No, she said, this time we must dedicate ourselves to starting a real movement, not just across the city, but across the country. And this time we must not stop until the District of Columbia becomes the 51st state of the United States of America. And this long-fighting warrior on the Hill hopes she'll be there to see it. Placemakers is a production of Slate Magazine and is produced by Mia Lobel, Diana Douglas, and Michael Volo, and edited by Julia Barton. Our researcher is Matthew Schwartz. Eric Shimalonis does our mixing and musical scoring. Our theme was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. I'm Rebecca Shear. For more information about today's show and other episodes of Placemakers, go to slate.com slash placemakers. You can drop us a line at placemakers at slate.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Slate Placemaker. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a review or a rating on iTunes. It really does help. Coming up next time on Placemakers... You'll find a Martin Luther King Jr. drive in many cities across the U.S. And even though the thoroughfare is named for a man who gave his life to uplifting communities, it often runs through a part of town that suffered through decades of disinvestment. Right now, as you can look around, it's abandoned buildings and boarded up buildings. And that's not what Dr. King stood for. He stood for beauty. We'll head to St. Louis, Missouri, where this man and many others are working to eradicate urban blight from the outside in. When they did the first poll, D.C. residents didn't know who I was in any large number. So, I mean, six people were running for the darn seat. So it was just as hard as I thought it would be. Hey, guys. Yep, I'm still here. Those of you still around, I want to ask you a small favor. Here at Placemakers, we want to learn more about you, our listeners, and your opinions. We know you guys have strong opinions. So we created a quick survey that we'd love for you to take. If you fill it out, you'll automatically be entered for a chance to win a $150 Amazon gift card. And you'll be helping us continue to create content that makes your ears and your brain happy. To fill out the survey, go to slate.com slash survey2. That's slate.com slash survey2. Thank you.